Take a Bible this morning and find Luke chapter 19. It's a perfect song to sing as we come to the passage we're about to look at. We just sang that God's grace finds us. And this morning we come after many, many weeks to Luke 19. And our passage is verse 1 to 27, which means it includes Luke 19.10. And if you've been around a Sunday or two or more, I hope you know Luke 19.10 by now. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If this is your first Sunday with us, you haven't been uh, with us as we've studied through the Gospel of Luke, you need to know that Luke 19.10 is the big idea, the theme verse, the one central truth that drives everything forward in the Gospel of Luke. Everything we read in Luke about Jesus, about the disciples, about the cross, the resurrection, all of it centers on this one idea that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now before we read our passage, I want you to look at Luke 19 verse 1. I just want you to note that in verse 1, Jesus is entering Jericho, but he's not there to stay. It says he's passing through. And then when you look over at verse 11 in Luke 19, it says that uh, as he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. So he's passing through Jericho. He's near to Jerusalem, which means in Jericho to Jerusalem is about 17 miles. And all the way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Many, many months earlier, he made this decision to go to Jerusalem. It was his last trip. He knew exactly what waits him in Jerusalem, but he set his face. He made up his mind. He resolved in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. And in our passage this morning, we are really really close to Jerusalem. In fact, next week, when we pick up in Luke 19, 28, we're going to talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So he's almost there. He's been on this trip all the way since Luke 9, 51, and he has almost reached his destination. So here's the plan this morning. We're going to read Luke 19, verse 1 to 27, and we're going to talk about repentance, and we're going to talk about service. Uh, I want to try to apply these things to your life to our lives as a church, and then we're going to have a special time where I give a charge to Ron Hinesley. I made Ron move from the seat over here that is shaped like his backside over here to the middle, so I wouldn't have to stare over here to the side. I can just look right down the middle. I'll stare right through Corey and look right at Ron. There you go. Better. And uh, last week, we voted uh, affirmatively to call Ron as an elder at Emmanuel. And we're going to do that this morning. We're going to pray for him and set him apart for that task. One of the things, uh, there's a lot of things I like about Ron. One of the things I like about him is that as we've been planning this day, he's told me on many occasions, I don't want it to be the Ron Hinesley show. Uh, I don't want it to be a, a time where we come together and it's just all about me. And I appreciate that. And uh, as we look at the word this morning, I don't want you to just think this is the Sunday where we put Ron up on some pedestal and we talk about how great he is and he feels really great about himself. This is just a normal Sunday where we look at the word of God, we see what it has to say to our lives, we're going to think specifically for a little bit about Ron and what we are calling him to or rather what God is calling him to and then we're going to have a time of response just like we always do. So with that being said, I want you to look with me in your Bible, or you can follow along on the screens, Luke 19, verse 1, and we'll read to verse 27. The Word of God says this, He entered Jericho and was passing through. 
and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was of small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone into the, to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, for you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. As we have many times over the past few months, we thank you that the Son of Man came to seek us and to save us. We thank, that, thank you that because of your grace, we have the opportunity to turn from sin and to follow Jesus. We thank you that because of your grace, we have the opportunity to serve you. 
And as we think about repentance and as we think about service, we pray that you would apply these truths to our lives this morning. And as we set aside Ron to the task that you've called him to, we pray that you would be honored, that it would not be about us, but even in calling him to serve, it would be about others. It would be about you. Father, guide us this morning. Be honored in the things that we say and the things that we think in our hearts. Father, help us to understand your word and to leave changed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start with Zacchaeus. I think if Zacchaeus could be here today, and by here I mean our day and time, our society, our culture, he would be very disappointed to know how we remember him. I think he'd be very disappointed to know that what we remember is a silly little song about a wee little man who climbs a tree. I know a few short guys, and I don't think that's how they would want to be memorialized in a song that emphasizes the fact that he was a wee man. But that's how we remember him, and you know the song. And as we read the passage, you probably started humming the song in your brain. It just probably popped in there, and you started thinking about it. So we remember him sort of in a silly way, but there's some really serious lessons from his life. And the ones I want you to see this morning have to do with repentance. Not just repentance, but let's qualify that and say genuine repentance. And let's just back up from genuine repentance and say, what a silly thing that we have to call repentance genuine repentance. It's either repentance or it's not repentance. The problem is we have a lot of people in our day and time in the Bible Belt, in pews, on Sunday mornings, who think they have repented, but they haven't. And so we have to add this qualifier, genuine repentance. It's kind of like talking about, are you a serious, devoted Christian? Either you're a Christian or you're not. Either you're devoted or you're not. We shouldn't have to use the adjective, but because of the place we live and the culture we live in, sometimes those words are helpful. So genuine repentance. First thing you need to see is this, genuine repentance is joyful. Joyful. This is really important. Verse 6, when Zacchaeus came down from that tree and took Jesus to his house, how does Luke tell us he did it? He did it joyfully. He was glad to come down to obey Jesus to welcome him into his home and to listen to what he had to say. Luke goes on to describe the restitution that Zacchaeus made. And he never tells us again that he did it joyfully, but I'm just telling you the details that Luke includes in the story tell us he did it joyfully. There was no arm twisting. There was no guilt trip. He did it gladly, willingly, and joyfully. He could have said, we're going to talk in a minute about what repentance looks like to others. He could have just said, I'm going to make it right with all the people that I've stolen from. So I stole 50 bucks from you, and I stole 100 bucks from you, and 20 from you, and 15 from you, and I'm going to pay you all back what I stole you, plus I'm going to give you a little bit of interest to make up for it. Instead, what does Zacchaeus do? He says, I'm going to take half of everything that I've accumulated, and I'm going to give it to poor people. Half, right off the top. Divide a line right down the middle of my stuff, Half of it's going away. Then I'm going to go with my remaining half, and the people that I ripped off, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. Listen, you start doing the math on this, I'm not even sure he had the money to cash those checks. But he says, that's what I'm going to do to make it right. 
And maybe in his mind, he doesn't think he has enough in his remaining half to pay everybody back fourfold. Maybe what he's saying is, I'm going to have to work at this for a while. I'm going to have to pay this off a little bit as I go. But here's what you see in Zacchaeus, and he's, he's making this restitution. You don't see a man trying to do the bare minimum it takes to get into heaven. Sometimes people do that, especially in the Bible Belt. Like, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. What do I need to do? I need to pray a certain prayer. I need to go to church. I need to not say cuss words. I need to be nice. Okay, I'm going to try to do all that as best as I can. Zacchaeus is saying, forget the bare minimum that I need to do to get into heaven someday. I don't love this money and this stuff like I used to. I am joyfully getting rid of it. You don't have to twist my arm into it. You don't have to tell me how much or what percentage of interest I need to pay people back. I'm going to get rid of half of it. I'm going to pay everybody else back fourfold. This is a man who used to worship money. Now he worships Jesus. And he's not depressed that he has to get rid of this money. He's excited to get the money out of the way so that he can follow Jesus. Understand this, there is nothing remorseful, sad, bummed out, disappointed in his repentance. It's joyful. Now, I know that we're a Baptist church. I know that we're not a Catholic church. I have a lot of Catholic family members. Maybe you do. Maybe you have friends in town who, who would say to you that they're Catholic. So we're not Catholic. But can I just be honest with you? I think for most of us, when we think about repentance, we think about something like this. When I say the word repentance, let's talk about repentance. Not many of you get warm fuzzies. Ah, this is going to be good. This is going to be uplifting and encouraging. I'm going to leave with my spirits on a high note today. You think, oh, repentance? Oh, that's kind of like what you do when you go in the thing and the guy sits on the other side and you just start detailing all the things you've done this week. Okay, let's start with Monday. I woke up and it was all downhill from there. And I did this, and I did this, and then I said this. I probably shouldn't have said that. And then somebody cut me off, and I, I bit my tongue, but I thought something. And you just start going through this list. And you think about that, you think, that's miserable. That's not joyful. That's just you sort of having a guilty conscience and wanting to get this stuff off your back. That's not the picture of true repentance in the Bible, and it's not the, re picture, of, the picture of repentance in Zacchaeus' life. This is not like a miserable thing for him. It's a joyful thing for Zacchaeus to say, I once loved money more than anything else in the world. You know how? I cheated people. I was a traitor to my country. I got in bed with the Romans to work and to, to take advantage of folks. I stole from them. I lied to them. I piled it up all for myself because that's what I loved. And now he says, I don't love that anymore. And it's not that he found something he had to settle for. He found something better than money. He doesn't feel like he's making a sacrifice. He feels like he's getting the better end of the deal. Yes, I got to get rid of the money. I get to get rid of the money. But I've got Jesus. I'm joyful to get rid of it. I'm joyful to leave those things behind. Listen, in your life, if you think of repentance mostly as what you have to leave behind instead of what you get to follow after, you've missed the point of repentance. In your mind, if repentance is all about, well, I got to quit this and I got to stop that and I got to get rid of this, it's always going to be a negative thing. If repentance in your life is all about the things you're leaving behind, there's still part of you connected to those things. 
Genuine repentance says, I'm gladly leaving that filth, that nonsense, that little G God, that false idol, that whatever behind, because I found something better, something more valuable. So for Zacchaeus, genuine repentance was joyful. Number two, genuine repentance makes things right with others. I'll be honest with you, this is probably not the funnest part of repentance. This is the part that requires a little bit of humility on your part and a little bit of honesty. And Zacchaeus, in giving half of what he had to the poor and paying people fourfold back, is in effect saying to them, I stole from you. I looked in your face and I lied to you. I took what was yours and I used my power and my influence to make it mine. I manipulated you. I didn't care about you. I didn't value that you worked hard for what you had. I just took it because I wanted it. That's a lot of confession and admission to people when you're looking them in the eyeball. And in your life, it might look a little bit different. I don't know any of you who are chief tax collectors. But if you're joyfully repenting, you need to think about who are the people that I need to be square with. Who are the people that I need to go swallow my pride and say to them, what I did was not right. What I did was wrong. I'm not making excuses for it. I'm not trying to justify it. I'm not trying to explain to you why I did it. I'm just saying it was wrong. And Zacchaeus does that. He makes things right with other people. Number three, genuine repentance is a result of grace. It's a result of grace. I want you to just put your thinking cap on for a second. You think about this story. You know the song. You've hummed it in your head this morning. Who initiated the relationship between Jesus and Zacchaeus? Think about that. Don't answer out loud. Just think about it. Who initiated the relationship? We could probably have a debate. You could probably point to, uh, in the text, verse 3, that says, well, Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus. He wanted to know more about him. He was seeking him out, and he went and climbed up a tree. That was, think about it, let's be honest, that was probably embarrassing for a short guy. I'm going to climb up the tree because I want to see him. So maybe you would read that and you would say, Zacchaeus is the one who initiated it. Or maybe you would go to verse 5 and you would say, yeah, he was up in the tree, but Jesus was the one who walked up to him and started the conversation. And you could argue back and forth between verse 3 and 5 all day long, but can I just remind you what Luke 19.10 says? The Son of Man came to this earth to seek and to save what was lost. If there is no Luke 19.10, if there is no first Christmas, if there is no incarnation, there's no God becoming man, there is no wee little man sitting up in a tree to see who Jesus is. Jesus initiated it. You say, well, yeah, he was seeking. Cut all the arguments in the text and just go to verse 10 and say Jesus initiated it. When he left the throne of heaven and he walked on this earth as a servant, his grace was the first mover. And if you don't like Luke 9.10 to prove that point, let me give you some other verses you can look at. We're not going to look at them this morning. You can look at Acts 11.18. Acts 11.18. You can look at Romans 2.4. Look at 2 Timothy 2.25. All of those verses say, that repentance is a result of grace. Acts 11.18, Romans 2.4, 2 Timothy 2.25. Here's the thing. Be very careful in your life about turning repentance into a work 
that you have to do in order for God to save you. Be very careful about that. I think a lot of Christians make that mistake and they think, okay, repentance, the preacher said it's something I have to do. Yes, it is something you must do. It's not optional. But no one is saying that it's something you do so that God will then save you. It's not a work where you earn your salvation. You flip it on its head and you say, it's not something that I have to do. It's something I get to do. Because Jesus came to seek me and to save me, because he took my place on the cross, because he initiated a relationship with me, he came to find me when I was lost. What I get to do is leave all these worthless things behind, that's repentance, to follow him. That goes full circle to the idea that repentance is joyful. It's not something you have to do, it's something you get to do. And as you think about your life and you think about the different issues in your life where maybe repentance is needed, if in your mind you're thinking, oh, I guess I have to give that up, you've missed the point. You've totally missed the point. You're still focused on the things you're leaving behind instead of focusing on what you get, and what you get is Jesus. So, genuine repentance. It's joyful, it makes things right with others, it's a result of grace. Now let's talk about the parable. I don't want you to miss that first we read about Zacchaeus, and Jesus says that salvation has come to his house, and then Jesus tells a parable, and the parable has to do with service. And so the first thing you need to see about service is this. Salvation always leads to service. If God saved you, he's called you to serve, him and other people. There's no exceptions to this. There's no asterisk for this. There's no form you can fill out as like some kind of waiver to, to be exempt from this. If God saves a person, he calls them to serve, to serve him and to serve other people. And you see that in the order here. First, Zacchaeus finds salvation. Jesus finds Zacchaeus. Grace comes to his home. And then we read this parable about service. Here's the second thing you need to see about service. It's a matter of stewardship. It's a matter of stewardship. We're not going to work through the entire parable. In fact, the last part of the parable we're going to talk more about next week than this week, where Jesus talks bringing the enemies and slaughtering them. The big picture of the parable is pretty clear. The master entrusts certain things to his servants. And a day is coming where there will be an account given for what you did with them. In the parable, it's minas. Now, how many of you dealt in minas this week? Probably not many of you. Mina is an ancient measurement of weight. It can be broken down into different categories and different amounts of money. And typically, it's just used to describe in the Bible or in other ancient texts uh, a unit of currency. It'd be like talking about a dollar or a $100 bill or $1,000 or whatever. It's a mina. It's just amount of currency. And in this story, the master says, I'm going away. I'll be back. I have 10 minas. I'm going to give one to you and one to you and one to you to 10 of his servants. And he leaves. But then he comes back. And he expects them to give an account for what they did with it. And he just point blank asks them, this is what I gave you. What did you do with it while I was gone? What's a mina for you? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's money that God has entrusted to you. You understand the biblical view is that you don't have money, is that God has money and he lets you use it. 
And one day, all of the money that God has given to you, as Tyler prayed earlier, our stuff is from God, our money is from God, you're going to stand before God and you're going to give an account. How did you use it? What did you spend it on? How did you give it? What was most important to you? So maybe it's money. As you think about this, what would Amina be? Maybe it's your family. Maybe God's saying, I put these people under your care. How did you lead them? Maybe it's a job that God gave you. And someday he's going to say, how did you do the job that I gave you to do? Maybe it's preaching sermons on Sundays and and discipling people during the week. Maybe it's teaching in the uh, school system. Maybe it's working in the oil field. Who knows what it is? But someday you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, I gave you that job. Did you do it well? Did you do it to the best of your abilities? Did you do it to honor me? Did you use the influence and the relationships you had there to bring glory to me? How did you use it? You're going to give an account. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's your friends. God entrusts things to people, and it's a matter of stewardship. There's going to be an account given. That leads to number three. Faithfulness is more important than results. When you think about service, when you think about the things that God has entrusted to you, faithfulness is more important than results. So the master comes back, and the first servant that comes up says, you gave me one, I made ten. He says, great job. I'm going to set you over more responsibility. The next guy comes, and he says, you gave me one, and I made five. And does he say to the one who made five, well, this guy made ten. What's the matter with you? He says, good job. You get more responsibility. You took what I gave you, and you used it. You engaged in this business while I was gone. You were faithful in that. Thank you. It's only the guy who did nothing that gets in trouble. I'm afraid in the United States where we're so concerned with outward appearances and success and numbers and growing and big and this and that and whatever, that a lot of people would say, man, the guy that got five, what a loser. He couldn't get ten like the other guy. That's not the perspective of the master. Results are really not the issue. Faithfulness in using what he's given you is the issue. That means in your life, you don't need to compare your results to mine or to the person sitting next to you in the pew, whether it's your money or what you do here at the church or your job or your family. You don't need to try to play some comparison game. You just need to be faithful with the things that God has entrusted to you. So service. We've talked now about repentance and we've talked about service. All of those things apply to every person in the room. Now pick this particular Sunday for Ron's ordination because this passage flows so easily into what we're doing this morning when we set him aside and call him to serve as an elder of our church. When we say, Ron, we've met with you for a year. We've heard your testimony. We've heard about your life. We've seen your service here at the church. We believe that salvation has come to your house as it came to Zacchaeus' home. We've seen the fruits of repentance in your life. And now we believe that God has entrusted something to you and that you need to be faithful in that. And so with the rest of our time this morning, this is on your outline. You can follow along. I encourage you to do that. I want to give a charge specifically to Ron in things that God would expect of you as an elder at Emmanuel. And those of you who are not Ron understand this is what we as a church are calling him to. This is the expectation for what an elder is supposed to do 
at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and I hope that it can be clarifying in some ways where there may be confusion. So, Ron, here we go. Number one, charge number one. You're called to be a man of Christ-like character. Christ-like character. And I was intentional about not putting these verses up on the screen. And I just want everybody to turn to these verses. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 3. In 1 Timothy, Paul gives instructions to his protege, Timothy. All kinds of instructions about how to lead, about things that should happen in church, about what it means to be a deacon or an overseer. Overseer is another term for elder. And you can read for yourself later today. We know that we've talked about these things with Ron. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 7. But I think the best summary of what Paul is saying in that passage is in verse 2 where he says an overseer must be above reproach above reproach and you can read through the list there are a few skills there are a few abilities things that somebody needs to be good at to serve in this capacity but Ron most of what you see in that passage relate to character issues who you are and you understand we've talked about this that as an elder of a church these things not only are true for everybody in the room, right? There's nothing on this list that every person in the room shouldn't strive to. But as an elder, when you fall short of being above reproach, it brings more harm to the name of Christ than if a church member does it. As an elder, when you fall short of, of living this life of godly character, it brings more harm to Emmanuel Baptist than if a regular member does it. All of these things are heightened in an important way, and we've talked about that with you. And so we're calling you to be a man of Christ-like character. We're also calling you to equip the believers at this church. And this one's important. Ephesians chapter 4, turn to that passage. I have never heard this phrase here at Emmanuel. I've heard it at other churches that I've been at. I've heard it at... Uh, churches where my friends were pastor where something needs to be done in the church and somebody a member will say something to the effect of well that's why we pay the preacher we pay him to do that stuff that's why we pay the youth pastor we pay him to do that stuff and that just kind of goes against what you see in Ephesians 4 verse 11 Paul says that God that's he he gave the apostles and the prophets in the evangelist, in the shepherds, that's our term for this morning, the shepherds, you could insert pastor, you could insert overseer. He gave the shepherds and the teachers. Why did he give them? To equip the saints. Look around the room for the saints. You don't need to get online and Google who are the saints, St. Saint Peter, St. Saint Paul, the really, really holy people. Saints is the people in this room. He gave pastors to the church to equip the church for the work of of ministry. What is the work of ministry? It's building up the body of Christ. How long do we do it? Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. What does it look like? It looks like mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why is it important? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up into Him 
who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, the whole body grows and it builds itself up in love. And way at the beginning of that, in verse 11, Paul says, the pastor's job, the shepherd's job, is to equip people for the work of the ministry. Which means, as an elder at Emmanuel, we certainly expect you to be involved in serving in the work of the ministry. But on top of that, we're saying we expect you to equip the people in this room so that they can turn around and be involved in the ministry. That's part of what it means to serve as an elder. You equip the believers at your church. Number three, this is a big one. You're called to fight for the church that Jesus died to save. Acts chapter 20. Beginning in verse 17 of Acts 20, we read from Luke that Paul has started this church in Ephesus, and now he's leaving. And he's meeting with the elders of this church before he moves on, before he goes to a new place. And he's giving them a charge, he's giving them a commission, and the whole passage is instructive. But look what he says in Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention. This is Paul talking to the elders of this church, the pastors of this church. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Right? The role of an elder is not something the church gives to you. It's something that God gives to you. The Holy Spirit calls you to this. And he says, pay attention to yourself and to the flock. The Holy Spirit's made you an overseer. Why? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's heavy stuff. That's Paul telling the pastors of the church in Ephesus. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost and to build a church. And he bought it. He purchased it with his blood. That's how valuable it is. Your job is to care for it. To watch yourself, that's being a man of character. And to care for the flock. Equipping the saints, but also when necessary, fighting for the church that Jesus died to save. And that leads directly to the, the last charge I want to give you. You will give an account for the souls you watch over. You will give an account. Look at the book of Hebrews at the very end. The verse we're about to read is really a charge for the congregation. I picked it on purpose so that as we're ordaining Ron, you also understand, the church, that you have responsibilities in what's happening this morning. But as we read this verse that's a charge to the church, there's also some expectations for Ron. Hebrews 13.7 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now when we hear that as Americans, we say, No. I'm not going to submit to anybody. Our country was founded on the fact that we don't want to submit. We don't submit to anyone. But you understand in the context of the scripture when it says submit to your leaders, it's talking about submit to the people that God gave to your church for a specific purpose, to equip the saints. Not people who are lording it over you in authority, but people who are serving you as Jesus served. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Why? They're keeping watch over your souls 
Here you go, Ron. As those who will have to give an account. Let them do this, not with grumbling, not in misery, but let them do it with joy, not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. The charge to the church is follow your leaders. You've recognized God's call on their life. You've set them apart to lead. Follow them. Do it in a way that they don't have to lead with a grumbling spirit. The charge for Ron is one of these days you're going to give an account for the souls that you watch over. And in between then and now, you need to lead as an elder with joy. That's the charge to you. So we've called you to be a man of Christ-like character. Called you to equip believers at Emmanuel. Called you to fight for the church that Jesus died to save. And reminded you that you will give an account for the souls that you watch over. So the process has looked like this up to this point. The elders several, several months back began praying about uh, who God might be leading us towards in this process. And we did not want to look for somebody with potential to be an elder. We wanted to look for somebody who was serving as an elder that we would then in turn recognize. And through that process, we, we unanimously agreed on Ron. And Ron has met with us for the last year at our elders meetings and he's studied the things that we've studied and he's participated in the discussions we've had and we've prayed together and we have quizzed him and quizzed him and grilled him and asked him questions and uh, on the end of that we presented him to you the church and we said we need to know is there any reservation is there any hesitation and there was none that was shared with our leadership and our response at this point is to say as a church family we want to set him apart to the task of leading at Emmanuel as an elder, as a pastor, as an overseer. Those of you who have been around here, or you've been to our new member class, know that we have some elders here who work here. We have other elders here who work outside of this building. All of us meet together and uh, provide spiritual leadership as a group. And so, Ron, we're excited this morning to recognize the call that God has placed on your life and to affirm that and we want to end this process of all the things that we've done by laying hands on you and praying for you. So I'm going to ask Ron to come up to the front. And I'm going to ask our elders and our deacons who are in the room to please come up to the front. And uh, you guys, I'm going to ask you to gather around Ron and pray for him. Sometimes in an ordination, we do like a Baptist do an assembly line all the way through. We're not going to do that. But we are going to come around Ron and pray for him. And uh, you as the church, I'm asking you to pray for him as well. To pray for our church family that we would continue to be united around our leadership. To pray for our leadership that God would help us to be men of godly character. And uh, to do the things that he's called us to do. So I'm going to give you just a, just a minute to pray. Congregation, to pray. Men here at the front, to pray for Ron. And then I'm going to close us in prayer in just a minute.
Father, this morning we recognize you as our creator. We recognize you as our savior. Father, you are the one who made us and you're the one who sent the Son of Man to seek us and to save us. Father, we acknowledge this morning that this is your church. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to our leaders. It does not belong to any of us. You bought it. You purchased it with the blood of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that you have sustained this church family and you have provided for this church family and we're thankful for that. Father, I thank you for the men that you placed in leadership at our church. And in particular this morning, we recognize Ron and we thank you for him. We thank you that you have begun a good work in his life and that we know you will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Ron's willingness to serve in this role, for the, the prayerful consideration that he put into this process. We thank you for Ron and his love for you and his passion for you and his passion to teach your word. And I thank you for his faithfulness to show up week in and week out and to teach your, your truth to people in this church. And we believe that as he's doing that, he's equipping your people for the work of ministry. Father, we pray that you would empower Ron to be a man of Christ-like character. We pray that you would use him to equip the saints in this church for the work of the ministry. We pray that you would give him courage to fight for this church. We pray that you would keep him mindful of the fact that he will give an account for the way he serves and for the souls that he watches over. Father, in Ron's life, in his family's life, in his professional life, in his life as an elder of this church, we pray that it would never be about Ron, but that it would be about Jesus Christ and that you would shine through him and speak through him and be glorified through him. Father, we pray that for our church, that it would not be about us, it would not be about a performance, it would not be about our image or what people think about us, but that it, it would be about Jesus, that we would be focused on worshiping Jesus, on making him known, and bringing him glory. Father, we love you, we thank you for Ron, and again, pray that you would be honored as he steps into this role. We pray in Jesus' name.